Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Robin, member of this congregation. First reading today is from Psalm 73, Psalm of Aphas. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet have almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. And from the New Testament, Mark chapter 8, verses 31 to 36. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, 
but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. For good is it for someone to gain the whole world. For what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. It's great to be here. My name is Rowan. I'm an assistant minister here at Churchill Anglican, usually down at the Garrison Church, uh, but it's lovely to be here with you this morning. This morning, as Justin shared, we're looking at first aid for discipleship. This year, with this strategic plan, we're looking at growing as deeper disciples. And so in these first four weeks, we're considering what may derail deeper discipleship. Uh, a disciple Rob shared with us last week, very helpfully, is a learner. Learner, a, a person loyal to a teacher and our teacher, the Lord Jesus. And so what will derail our discipleship? And this morning we're looking at the theme of fearing missing out. FOMO, it's a thing. It's an acronym, stands for fear of missing out. And in the Urban Dictionary, there is such a thing. It's where uncool guys like me go to find out what's hip. This is how it describes it. It says, the state of mental or emotional strain caused by fear of missing out. A compulsive concern that one might miss an opportunity or satisfying event. You might have heard it, you might have used it. It's a hashtag, uh, but it also describes something that a lot of us feel frequently. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because it, it describes a deep insecurity that dwells in each of us as we look out at our world. Uh, in the past, you might have opened the curtains to see the Smiths drive their new car into the driveway and you feel like you're missing out or may have been shown the photos from the overseas holiday. But now, in our media age, all you have to do is scroll through your screen and you see endless things. You see what you don't have, where you haven't been, who you are not with, what body you don't inhabit, what things you haven't accomplished, and what cute kittens you don't own. It's all there for you as you scroll through. And the reality is, as you scroll through, everyone looks so happy and fulfilled. We're missing out. It's a feeling we feel, isn't it? We hate missing out. But this feeling is not new. And we read of a kind of FOMO, fear of missing out, in the psalm today. We see in verse 2 that he looks at those around him. He sees them trouble-free and prospering. And he envies them. And of course, this is old as the Garden of Eden where the serpent offered Eve something more, it seems that perfection is not even good enough for us. So FOMO is real, it's something we experience, and it threatens to derail deeper discipleship. So how do we not get derailed by it? Well, that's what we're hoping to address. But before we apply first aid to this, we need to work toward a healthy diagnosis. At its core, the fear of missing out is, I propose, a disordering of loves. A disordering of loves. Let me explain what I mean by that. 
And to help, uh, we're going to draw upon 5th century theologian St. Augustine. St. Augustine wrote a beautiful, extensive meditation. It's almost a prayer. It's called the Confessions. And he begins the Confessions with these words. He says, To praise you is the desire of man. You have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. That's in the front quotes there. You have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. Augustine recognizes that God created us, and out of the overflow of his love, he created us to take delight in him, to love him, to find our rest in him. But the reality is, to the extent that we don't do that, we will be restless. And Augustine speaks of this restfulness from first-hand experience. Later in the Confessions, he speaks of his earlier life, and he says this. He says, Late have I loved you, beauty so old and so new. Late I have loved you. He's lamenting his late coming to the recognition of these things. And he goes on. And you see, you were within, and I was in the external world and sought you there. And in my unlovely state, I plunged into those lovely things, those lovely created things which you made. You were with me, and I was not with you. The lovely things kept me far from you, although if they did not have their existence in you, they had no existence at all. Augustine recognises that his restless heart is restless because the lovely things kept him far from God. Lovely things, created things, good things. But they kept his heart restless because he was trying to find happiness, rest and peace in them. See, it's so easy, isn't it, to think that Things, lovely things, is where we will find happiness, where rest can be found. But Augustine tells us that true happiness, true rest, is only found in God. He is the lovely thing, capital L. And this is a wonderful insight into the human heart. And Augustine, in another work, distinguishes between two things which help us explore this just a little bit further. He distinguishes between what he calls the use and the enjoyment of things, what we use and what we enjoy. And what we use, he says, lasts for a limited time as a means to an end, but what we enjoy will last forever and is an end in itself. God's gifts, the lovely things, are meant to be used so that we would find our enjoyment in God. They're not necessarily wrong, but they can derail us in our discipleship. But when we treat them as means to ends, we will, Augustine says, be endlessly restless. I don't know about you, but that is a feeling that I've certainly experienced. It maps onto our experience. We get something lovely only to want something more. It's true of things, relationships, career pursuits and other things. 
And so what Augustine helpfully shows us is that there is only one end to enjoy. That's God himself. That's where we will find our true happiness and rest. Charles Simeon, who was a preacher in Cambridge in the 19th century, rightly puts this helpfully for us. He says, we can enjoy God in everything and enjoy everything in God. That's the right order of things presented to us. So you see that FOMO tracks onto this diagnosis. Fear of missing out is our hearts trying to find rest and happiness in the wrong place. But what we see is when we do that, it's enslaving. I don't know if there is a a lifestyle or an object or person or an ideal that is, is capturing you in a way that's enslaving. But the Bible says it's more than slavery, it's outright idolatry. And we've all done it, and it leads to all kinds of negative fruit. So what are its symptoms? I'm just going to mention two quickly, you'll see there in the outline. Firstly, fear of missing out can make us feel disappointed and discontent. When we're always on the lookout, we are not attuned to the good things that God has given us. We always have eyes for what we don't have, where we're not, what others have and want. And it leads to envy and disappointment. But secondly, it can also lead us to be distracted and double-minded. We lose perspective and focus on what's good and important. Distracted by others' lovely things, it leads us to envy. But it can also mean that we're double-minded. We become commitment-adverse. We want to keep our options open just in case. Our restlessness can quickly slip also into rejection of God and his call on our lives. We fail to commit. We fail to care about God's word and his ways. So can you see the ways in which fear of missing out can really derail deeper discipleship? Well, with the help of Augustine, we've diagnosed it. We've reflected on some of its symptoms. What first aid can we administer? Well, that's where the psalmist helps us today, as does Jesus in our second reading. The psalmist in this um, wonderful psalm reflects retrospectively about the state of his, his heart. And you see that there is a sense in which he experiences the fear of missing out. In verses 1 to 14, he speaks about the easy way of others. It's like he's, he's scrolling through the social media and seeing the lives of others. They're healthy, they're sleek-bodied, they're connected, they don't have responsibility. And what makes this harder to swallow for him is that they don't seem to have any care for God. And he is sought to be pure in heart, and it doesn't seem to be working out for him. This is not how it should be. He sees that he almost gave way to envy. The psalmist begins to question God's goodness and his ways. In verses 13 and 14, you see, he says, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. And perhaps you felt this yourself as well. Perhaps you might feel that following Jesus is not working out for you. Others who seem to have no care of him seem happier, healthier, 
less troubled, less afflicted, why not toss it in? Well, the psalmist helpfully administers some first aid to us here. And the first thing he administers to us is a dose of perspective. So in verses 1 to 16, he's been speaking about seeing things a certain way. But in verse 17, he recognises that he hasn't seen rightly. And we see a shift. And with that shift in the psalm, we see a lift. How does it come? Well, it says, until I entered the sanctuary of God. The sanctuary most likely refers to the tabernacle in the temple. That is God's presence amongst his people. And his experience of coming into the temple amongst God's presence is that it re-collaborates his perspective. It helps him to see with new eyes what's really going on. By, lifting, by entering God's sanctuary and by lifting his eyes from, from the temporary, he gets to see the eternal perspective of things. By entering the sanctuary, he's not overwhelmed by the present realities, but he gets to see for the first time ultimate realities. He's given right perspective. And it's so easy for us, isn't it, with the pictures and promises of the good life that we see constantly before us to lose perspective also. To think that the attainment of lovely things is where true happiness and rest is found. We need the perspective that the Spirit provides to lift our eyes from the temporary to the eternal, from our present realities to ultimate realities. So the Spirit administers perspective to him. And secondly, we see the psalmist administers a dose of penitence or confession. See, this perspective that the psalmist gets humbles him and it leads him to recognise his error in the way that he saw things. And, and more than that, he recognises the way in which that has the potential to hurt, hurt himself, others, and ultimately offend God. See, we see that his envy had hurt him. In verse 2, he had almost slipped, he'd lost his foothold. His envy had nearly led him to lead others astray. We see that in verse 15. But ultimately, it was offence to God and his ways. He had been ignorant and arrogant toward God. Verse 22. But the psalmist, when he recognises, when he's given this perspective, is led to penitence. He names it. And he humbles himself before God. He describes himself... As, as being beast-like. And it's a confession of sorts. And what's a beautiful picture in this psalm is that when one humbles themselves, recognises their, their errors, how does God respond? Well, as he always does according to his character, kind and graciously. And we see that in verse 23 in the word, Yet. Recognising that he has been beastly in the way that he's viewed things and seen things, he comes before God and it says, Yet I am always with you, you hold me by my right hand. 
It's a beautiful picture of restoration, of kindness and graciousness being shown to him. He's been troubled and burdened, but with perspective, when he comes in penitence, there is this wonderful, great unburdening. And this is equally true for us when we come to our Father in the Lord Jesus. And the psalmist's final first aid that he administers is is praise. And we see that in verses 24 to 28. And there's a movement here. So he, he begins with getting perspective. Then he moves in humility to penitence. And then that leads to to praise. In verse 25 and 26, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. They're lovely words, aren't they? He's saying that if I don't have you, I have nothing. It's a recognition that nothing will ultimately satisfy or last but God. God is the one to enjoy. He is the lovely one. God is the one in whom he will find his rest. When we speak about the future, heaven, we rightly speak about the heavens coming down to earth and this earth being renewed. And that's a wonderful thing. But what makes heaven heaven is that we get God. We get him. That in a renewed world, we will be caught up in never-ending fountain of joy, delight, and adoration. Whom have I in heaven but you? God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So do you see, see the movement of this passage? When, when he's worried he'll, he'll miss out, he moves from perspective leading to penitence, moving to praise. And that's what's so beautiful about this psalm for us because what it does is it provides a script for us. The psalms in their themes cover every human emotion imaginable. And the beauty of them is they're scripts for us to use, to orient our hearts, to re-collaborate our perspective the right way. And it's more true as we read them through the lens of Christ. See, when we fear that we'll miss out, when we experience suffering, well, we draw near to God, or rather God draws near to us, not in a temple, but in a person. And by his spirit and through his son, we get forgiveness, restoration, hope of a future. We get him. It's interesting, just as a side note, as we read through the confession earlier, this movement of perspective to penitence to praise is a similar movement in the prodigal son. The son rejects his father, he takes his gifts, and he uses them as ends, and he squanders them. As he's amongst the pigs, he gets perspective. He remembers his father's table laid out. And he comes to his senses, he gets perspective, and he goes to his father in penitence, a confession of sorts. And how does his father respond? Well, he restores him, and there is great thanksgiving and a great feast. 
It follows the similar sense that our hearts can be oriented as a script as we walk through those scriptures. They're a great gift to us. And so the psalm today, it works to, to woo us, as it were, to God, to find our rest in him, to pursue him as the thing to enjoy where true happiness and rest is found. But the scriptures also work to challenge us. There's a kind of push and pull. And if this wooing is the pulling toward finding our rest in God, well, Jesus' words in the second passage today are the helpful challenge. And we need both. And so the final thing to administer is a practice practice of self-denial. In Mark 8, Jesus has just said that he is the Messiah. He is God's chosen king to bring about God's kingdom. And that will mean going to the cross and rising to new life in the resurrection. And Jesus then outlines what it looks like to follow him. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. God calls us to find our rest and happiness in him, but the path to that is, ironically, through self-denial. I think we find this hard because we live in an instant age. I lived in the UK for many years and we had what was Amazon Prime there, which was basically you made an order and it would come the next day. It was amazing. And then we moved to London for two years and they had Amazon Prime now. And it came within three hours in this cute little paper bag at the door. We live in an instant age where we don't have to wait to next week to watch a new episode of something. It starts screening before the other one's even finished. And so we find it so difficult, don't we, to think about self-denial or to delay gratification. But Jesus says the path to life involves self-denial. It will mean a cost now. It will mean that we'll miss out on certain things. But we are given the eternal perspective. We're given insight into ultimate realities. But for now, it will mean that we view things from an eternal rather than temporal perspective. It will mean that we follow Jesus and not the world on lifestyle and ethical choices. It will mean that the advancement of the gospel supersedes our own plans and desires. It will mean that we put ourselves last and others first. In short, it means dying to ourselves. It will cost. We will miss out for now. And we rightly and soberly need to weigh this up. But the cost comes with a promise. For it says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? This past week on January 8th, it marks the 65th anniversary of the death of five missionaries, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Ed McCulley, Pete Fleming and Roger Udrian. These five missionaries were in their 20s and 30s, were speared to death when they arrived on the shores of Ecuador in 1956. Remarkably, in subsequent years, Elliot's wife, Jim Elliot's wife, Elizabeth, and 
Nate's sister, Rachel, went back to continue their work with family members, and many among them put their trust in Christ. But these, these men gave up their lives literally that others might hear the words of life. Does it sound foolish to us? Well, in Jim Elliott's journal, he penned what are now these famous words, and you can hear the echoes of his saviour in them. He says, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jesus said, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Now, our calling may not be to take the gospel to dangerous and hostile places, but it may be. And our world is increasingly hostile to it. And this is a a scriptural word of challenge to us. So the final dose is a practice to die to self daily, to live for Jesus and the advancement of his gospel. But the truth is that this is actually the path to rest and happiness. But we can't do this in our own strength. We need the Spirit's help to do this. Well, what might stop us? Well, I think we have an aversion to loss, don't we? The fear of missing out is is real, and we need to name that. Particularly in our world of instant gratification, giving up, losing things runs counter to how society thinks and runs counter the very fabric of our beings, it feels at times. But Jesus gives us new eyes to see the world the right way up, where the path up is down, where denying yourself is actually the way to fullness, where losing your life is the way to gaining it. So let's ask the Spirit to be at work in us to help us see the world this way, and to follow our Lord Jesus. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I'm going to close with a prayer from St. Augustine. Our good and gracious God, the light of the minds that know you, the joy of the hearts that love you, and the strength of the wills that serve you, Grant us so to know you, that we may truly love you, so to love you that we may truly serve you, whose service is perfect freedom, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.